For much of this year, we have been exploring Luke's gospel. And uh, we started right back at the beginning of the year, sort of with uh, the, the nativity sort of story. We went through the early ministry in Galilee. And since June, since June, we started a long journey towards Jerusalem. We started going along, heading for the holy city. Next week, we come to the end of the lectionary year, and we will be thinking about our king upon the cross. But for now, we are in the holy city, and it is the week leading up to the Passover, It is the event of the year where God's people remember. They remember how Moses was given a promise and how God fulfilled that promise when he led the Israelites on the Exodus journey when on a night like no other their travels began and the blood of the Lamb saved the people that were ready to go to the promised land. And here they are, the disciples, getting ready for that celebration. It's quite unlikely that for the disciples, it's their first visit to Jerusalem, their first sight of the temple. And yet to hear their words as they look at the structure and the decoration that's there, all the beauty that surrounds them, we're left going, why do they marvel? They just marvel at the scale and the crafting. They sound a bit like tourists seeing some magnificent structure that they've heard of but not seen before, that haven't been on that journey. But there's also something more. There's also something more. The recent rebuild of the temple was the work of Herod the Great. It was the same Herod that was the king of Judea, when the Magi journeyed from the east. The same Herod that Matthew's Gospel tells us ordered the massacre of the innocents. He was not a great man of God. The stone out in the concourse here from 96, when the church extended, says, to the glory of God, But that was not the purpose of the temple expansion. The doubling of the size of the precincts was not to enhance worship or to honour God, but so that Herod himself would be praised and remembered. A commentator that I read in the past week said that this was 
to make the city suitable for his greatness. The city didn't measure up to how great Herod was, so he had to build the temple bigger. And I guess there was the possible added benefit of increasing popularity with his Jewish subjects, as well as upping the footfall and therefore the turnover. This is how Herod thought. But what do the disciples think as they look and they marvel? Is it that they are thinking of what might be their future? For we must recall what sort of a king they think the Christ is. What sort of a king they think Jesus is right up until the moment of his arrest? A few days earlier, the crowd was calling out, Blessed be the son of David. They have seen the tables turned over in these temple precincts. They've seen the money changers driven out. They've heard Jesus preaching there day on day and how he answered the Sadducees' questions, countering their theology demonstrating that he had better knowledge of scriptures than them. Such good answers that the scribes of the law say, good answer. Jesus is there. The king has arrived. And even before the arrival in the city, Peter had declared that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one that's been long promised. He is the anointed one. It must surely seem to these close friends of Jesus, these disciples, these followers, that this temple that is so grand it's going to be a temple where they minister, that they will have control of. It's the sacrificial center of the Jewish faith. It must be the disciples' future. This ragtag bunch of fishermen, tax collectors, zealot, and the other ones, all the gang, the disciples feel the kingdom is about to be restored. It is in hand. They will take possession of the temple. But if they think that God's kingdom is seen in the massive stones of the temple, how they're built up high physically, then they have again misunderstood who Jesus is. And so Jesus says, the world of the temple, the world that Herod and his like had built, the world that 
the jaws drop open at the sight of. These giant stones that weigh hundreds of tons will come crashing down. The temple will fall. It will be destroyed. And what's more, wars will be fought. And earthquakes will shake the land. And famines will see people starve. And there will be pestilence, epidemic diseases. And all these things are coming. But when? The disciples might have thought the Lord was talking about an imminent time. And yet, these disasters might be thought to be recent to us. Some will point at the COVID pandemic or the war in Ukraine and ask, are these the signs of the end times? Is this it? But we know that over a hundred years ago, in 1918, they could have said that about the Great War, the war to end all wars, or maybe not. And also in 1918, a flu pandemic that swept across the earth in the closing months of that war. Jesus was not so much speaking of new threats and troubles or even particular threats and troubles, but he's almost stating the obvious that throughout all time in this fallen world, horrendous things have happened and will happen. And he says this not to scare the disciples, not to frighten them, but he says it so that they can build courage, so that they can have an awareness, so that they can form themselves and equip themselves for the knowledge of this disaster. We need courage as the world around us changes. How life was for us in our childhood and our teens is not the same as those who are young today, the generation that is our children or grandchildren or even great-grandchildren. The technology we use can be a blessing and a curse. The exam pressure, the strain of society. For those in their 20s and 30s, the idea of buying an affordable home is almost unfathomable. And we are all experiencing that costs are rising faster than our incomes. Many of these issues give us grief, and they might seem far removed from those things that Jesus was talking about in the first century, 
but energy and food cost increases come as a result of the war in Ukraine. Things have global impact. And on top of those things that affect the whole of society, everyone, Jesus says that his followers will face their own issue because they will be attacked because of their faith. The people of the way would be persecuted perhaps even by members of their birth family, by their siblings, by their parents, maybe by their friends, because of their faith. But for the Christian, we must remember that the water of baptism is thicker than the blood of our ancestors. Our faith in the Lord gives a life that cannot be taken away. We have a strength that is greater than any chariot, any tank, any bomber. When we see global disaster and strife, it may seem that what we are encountering is the end of the world. History would suggest it likely isn't. But even if it is, we have a hope because our God is love. However grim our situation is, Jesus promises that we are known by our Heavenly Father. And in the eternity that is beyond the pain of the earth, it will be for the faithful that not a single hair on their head is injured. In the resurrection, all will be well. And peace will be known. We are not yet there, but let us see his kingdom come, and let us bring another glimpse of that coming kingdom as we relate to others. Amen.